Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. So Romans chapter 8, have you ever kind of been in that place where you've just experienced God's goodness so much that you just don't even know what to say? Where you're just so blown away, you're almost without words. And, you know, that's kind of where, where Paul is. Uh, he's not without words. He, he will, he'll, he'll find his way for sure here in Romans chapter 8. But, you know, sometimes we're just in that place where we come face to face with God's goodness and we're just so blown away. And honestly, you know, I shared with you guys a couple Sundays ago just this whole process with the new church building, how all of that is unfolding. And it's just crazy how good the Lord is. And through every step of the way, how blown away I am at God's goodness. And I feel like, Paul, what shall we say then? And that's where we're going to start tonight. There in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. That's what Paul says, and we'll jump right in. Paul says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with uh, him also freely give us all things? How shall he not with him also give us all things? Freely give us all things. I don't know why that was hanging me up. Uh, Who shall bring us charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Cool. So Paul, he starts off this section, this last section in Romans, uh, just by simply saying, and what shall we say then to these things? Well, what things is Paul making reference to? Again, Paul's just blown away. What are we going to say to all these wonderful things? Uh, The wonderful things that that Paul is talking about is what he's made mention of from the beginning of Romans, that, that we've been justified. What an amazing truth that is, just as though we've never sinned. Uh, not only are we forgiven, but it's as if there was nothing there to ever forgive in the first place. What an amazing uh, truth that is. We are being sanctified. Uh, That is, we are set apart. We are being set apart currently, uh, and, and we are going to be set apart ultimately someday. So God took us and set us apart. We are uh, set apart positionally. We're in Jesus. Boy, uh, we are being uh, sanctified currently in this life, practically through just the life that we're living and the way that the Lord walks us through it. And ultimately, someday, we will be uh, set aside, sanctified in heaven, ultimately. And so we've been justified. We've been sanctified. Uh, we are free from the bondage of sin. Man, hallelujah. Amen to that. We are free from the bondage of the law. That's good news. We're free to just live out this new Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Man, Amen. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
There's no burden of guilt for those who us who have trusted in Jesus. And all of our present circumstances are being worked together for good. What shall we say then to these things? Well, I have a couple suggestions. <laughs> a couple things come to mind. Hallelujah. That's one of them. Praise the Lord. God is good. All that, I mean, what shall we say? Man, God is so good. And so Paul comes to this place after just kind of rapid fire. He's been unloading on us all of these spiritual truths nonstop. And now he kind of just comes up for a breath. Whew. What then shall we say to these things? Praise the Lord. Uh, Paul says, what shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a cool truth that is. If God is for us, who can be against us? First of all, how do we know that God is for us? How do we know uh, that God will come through on his promises at all? Well, we have the cross. Uh, he gave us Jesus. He gave us the most valuable thing possible. Jesus laid down his life for me and for you. How do we know that God is for us? Well, because he gave us the most valuable thing ever. Imagine if you laid down your life for another individual. Maybe you pushed them out of the way of a bus and you got hit, but maybe you jumped in front of a bullet. Maybe you saved them when they were drowning and you yourself drowned. And this person showed up to your funeral and they said, wow, you know, Pastor Jeremy saved my life, but he's always been against me. You say, wait a second, what? Uh, this can't be. Uh, the, these two things don't line up. He laid down his life for you, therefore he can't be against you. How do we know that God isn't against us, yet he's for us? Because he laid down his life for us. He proved it. And so Paul's point here, again, is if God gave us the most valuable possession, the most valuable thing, the most valuable gift that he could ever give, then why would he hold any other good thing back from us? Man, what a encouragement that is. So if, if God is for us, who can be against us? And, and let that sink in tonight. God is for you. If, if God is in your corner, then who can oppose you? And the answer to that question really is nobody. God is for you. Therefore, nobody can be against you. I remember when I was a kid, I must have been fourth grade, maybe third grade, and uh, we lived down in Anderson at the time, and it was the 4th of July. And we were all hanging out at Anderson River Park there on the Sacramento River, uh, getting ready to enjoy the festivities of the 4th of July. Me and my brother and some friends from the neighborhood were all playing on the playground. And there was this just, I don't know what this dude's deal was, but, you know, 4th of July, people were drinking and, and just being stupid. And, and he was in that category. He's just being an idiot. And, and he, he said to this group of kids, I'm going to get you guys. I mean, we were instigating, too. I think we were probably throwing dirt clods at his van and, you know, egging him on. But, but he's like, I'm going to get you guys. I'm going to whoop you guys good. And, and, and you know what we did? We ran, and, and we told my dad, this guy is chasing us. He's after us. He's going to get us. And my dad says, you show me that guy. And so I remember walking down to the playground and, and pointing out this drunk guy who was trying to, to get us, really. And I remember the look on his face when he saw my dad, like, uh-oh, I should not have messed with those kids, right? There's nobody that was going to get to me because they would have to go through my dad first. I mean, maybe Chuck Norris if he showed up, but maybe not even Chuck Norris. I mean, no one was going to get to me unless they went through my dad. And, and that's the idea. Nobody can get to you unless they go through God first. If God is for us, 
man, who can be against us? There's nobody getting through God. Nobody. And that's the reality. And so we can take great courage in that. But, but what is Paul saying? Is he saying that we just get a free pass then from any sort of, uh, of trouble, from uh, any sort of situation where people would come against us? Not at all. Uh, because he, he goes on to, to say, you know, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Meaning that there will be people who bring a charge against God's elect, but they won't be successful in that. But if you are a Christian, if you desire to live your life for Jesus, uh, persecution will come. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us, uh, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So Paul isn't offering us a promise of smooth sailing. Paul really is offering a promise of failure. Uh, plenty of people will come against you if you're living your life for Jesus. That's just the reality. Uh, but all will fail eventually. And when Paul says uh, there, uh, you know, in verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The implication is who will successfully bring uh, a charge against God's elect? And the answer to that question is, is nobody. Charges will come. People will make accusations, persecution will come, but none of it will really stick in the end. Why? Because we're strong, because we, we, we fought off the, the accusations, or because we had a, a, a clever counterattack, or because we responded rightly. None of those things. Nobody will be able to really make an accusation against us that will stick because we belong to Jesus. Because we're his, just like we've been talking about, even in Hebrews 12.2. Because Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Because he who began a good work in us uh, will complete it, it says there in Philippians 1. We are his elect. That's what he goes on to say in, in that. Uh, who will, who will uh, bring a charge against God's elect? God's elect. Uh, we are his elect. Uh, that's what we spent time talking about on Sunday, uh, those he foreknew, he predestined. Those who he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. See, he's already seen us through. From God's perspective, as we talked about on Sunday, outside of time and space, as his own, as those who belong to him, as Christians, as the elect, as the chosen, however you want to put it, from God's perspective, we are glorified. It is a done deal. He has already seen us through. He knows. He looks at your life and says, there's no charge that is going to stick against you because I know, I see the end of your life. You're going to make it through with flying colors. Not because you're amazing, not because you earn it, not because you deserve it, but because God is good. Because he is the one who justifies. Because he is the one who condemns. See, all charges against you and against me, any accusation, any persecution, it goes through God first. God is the judge. Jesus, capital J, judge. He is the judge. And if we have been justified, just as though we have never sinned, then what charges could be brought against us? Really, I mean, just think that through from a legal standpoint. If we have been justified, the just as though we've never sinned. 
then what accusation could be brought against us eternally that would stick? None. None. Man, I'm so glad for that. And again, Paul is not saying that, you know, we're going to just live this easy, smooth sailing life because persecution will come. Accusations do come. People can bring charges. They will, demons, Satan. Satan is known in the scriptures as the accuser. There in Revelation 12, 10. It says that he accuses the brethren day and night before the throne of God. Uh, but the Bible also tells us, uh, even here in verse 34, that Jesus is there making intercession for us. Uh, there in 1 John 2, 1, John says this. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So Jesus is our defense attorney. He is uh, our advocate. When the accusations come, when, when Satan is there, bringing accusations to the throne of God uh, about me and about you. Did you see Pastor Jeremy on the freeway today? Did you see that? The speed limit is not 85 miles an hour. Paid in full, Jesus would say. Did you see the attitude that he had earlier? Did, did, did you see those things? that Paid in full. Paid in full. Fill in the blank. Paid in full. Whatever action, whatever attitude, whatever situation, Jesus is there to say paid in full. All of your sin. Past, present, and future. If you trust in Jesus, if you're a born-again believer, man, paid in full. There is no accusation that would ever stick. How? How is it paid in full? It's what we've been talking about. It's this joy. It's the cross. Verse 34 tells us, Paul says, that it is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen. How is it that this is possible? How is it that Jesus is there standing before the Father saying, not guilty, paid in full because of the cross? See, the cross is where that whole transaction took place, whereby my sin was placed upon Jesus and his righteousness was put upon me. God's wrath for my sin and yours was poured out upon Jesus as he hung there on the cross. Remember the story? Remember in the Gospels? where Jesus hung on the cross, where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment when God's wrath was being poured out on Jesus for us. And what happened? The sky went dark. Middle of the day. The earth shook. There was an earthquake. And then the veil in the temple, that, that curtain that was a hand breadth, thick, 30 some odd feet tall, ripped from top to bottom. The significance of that, of course, was that it separated the holy place from the holy of holies. From, it was not a common place, but it's where the priests were. It opened up the place to where only the high priest could go once a year, where God's presence was. The veil being rent from top to bottom was that indication that our sins were definitely paid for and that all had access to God the Father, not through some man, not through some ordinary high priest, but through Jesus, who is our high priest. Our sins that stood between us and God had been dealt with once and for all. And now anybody could come to Jesus. 
And they're the last thing that Jesus said on the cross. Tetelestai. Paid in full. It is finished. And that's why when Satan makes accusations against you and against me, boy, none of them can stick. That's how Jesus can stand there legally and say, no, paid in full. I took that sin upon myself and transferred my righteousness to him or to her. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So I was justified. You were justified because Jesus was condemned. And so that transaction, boy, that's how it all works. That's how it takes place. But again, how do we know? How, how, how do we know? Right? There were lots of people who died on Roman crosses. There were even lots of people who claimed to be Messiah. You can look it up today. There are crazy people in our world today who claim to be the Messiah, who even claim to be Jesus reincarnated, and they have followings. People follow them. I'm blown away at how this works out in our world today. But there have been many people who have died on Roman crosses. Many men have claimed to be Messiah, but only one rose from the dead, and that one is Jesus. Only one proved it. Jesus proved that he was who he said. See, that's the thing with the resurrection. Uh, the resurrection is the hinge on which the gate of Christianity swings. Without the resurrection, we just have a, a cool story with nothing to back it up. But see, as Christians, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that our sins were placed on Jesus, that he died, that, that, that God's wrath paid uh, the price for our sins, that his righteousness was transferred to us, that he wasn't just talking a big game because he did what he said he was going to do. He conquered the grave. And this wasn't some, you know, back alley situation. This is not folklore or fairy tale. This is verifiable fact. Uh, this is historical reality. Uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. Jesus hung out for 40 days and ate and taught and, and, and hung out with people. He said, here, touch, look, see the wounds. It's me. Verifiable facts. The resurrection. Uh, he died. He rose. But then what does our text tell us? Uh, that now he sits at the right hand of the Father. It's pretty cool. That Jesus became a man. He left his throne in heaven. And he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried. He conquered the grave. But then when he left... Remember, after those 40 days, the disciples were just standing there as Jesus ascended into the clouds. He just didn't kind of ascend up into the ether and never to be heard of again. Or Where was Jesus? I don't know. He came, he went, he proved it, but I don't know what's up. No, he's at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. There at the place of honor and glory where he deserves to be. Ready to come back someday and rule and reign uh, on this earth again, and, and what a glorious time that will be. He's coming back. And so Paul, man, what a cool truth. He, he kind of gets to this place where he's like, wow, what shall we say? Man, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he, he tells us how we can know that God is for us. He reminds us, man, that really there is no condemnation. There's no accusation that will ever stick. And so Paul ha has really dealt with our past in, in Romans chapter 8. 
that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All the junk that was in your life before Jesus, all the sins, all the hang-ups, all of that, it's been dealt with. There's no condemnation. All the things that we're going through presently, difficult, all the, the joyous things, everything, all things, God is working together for good for us. Not just our, our past sin, but our present situation. And not just our present situation, now Paul moves into the future. Uh, Paul now deals with the future of every single believer. That there is no separation. That there is nothing that can snatch us from God's hands. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. And he begins this in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written? For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And so when Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God, man, nothing means nothing. There's not a single thing that can separate us from the love of God. And he goes through this list of, of real difficulties, honestly. So tribulation, trouble, uh, that word can mean pressure. Just Have you ever felt like life is just pressing at you from all sides? They can't separate you from God's love. No distress, which means narrow place or, or dire calamity. No persecution, as he talked about just a, a few verses earlier. Uh, no famine, uh, hunger, no, no physical ailments. Uh, nakedness, you think uh, of nakedness, and, and you know, you do think slaves would be naked, someone who's just destitute would be naked. Uh, you're stripped back of everything, not even in that situation uh, are you separated from God's love. No peril, no danger, not even sword. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And then Paul launches into this quote. He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as the sheep to slaughter. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Because you're reading through that, and it seems like he kind of takes a hard left. And you're like, Paul, where are you going with this? Well, well, first of all, where was that written? Paul is quoting another portion of Scripture. When he says, uh, as it is written, uh, he's quoting Psalm 44 uh, and in verse 22. And the thing with Psalm 44 is that, boy, it starts out as really kind of, uh, a happy song of remembrance where the psalmist is just recalling God's goodness to Israel when God was bringing them into the promised land. That the Lord had really beat back all of their enemies. Where the Lord had uh, fought all their battles for them. Where the Lord had planted his people in Israel and, and given them the land flowing with milk and honey a place where God protected him from the enemies. That's how the psalmist starts out. You say, wow, this is going to be a really encouraging psalm. But man, Psalm 44 takes a turn. And the psalmist begins to describe this harsh reality that they're living in, whereby their enemies are overrunning them and they are in this dire place of shame and just danger. And Psalm 44, uh, you know, really was written during that time of difficulty and defeat. Their enemies had overrun them. 
And the psalmist here is just scratching his head. And, and historically, we really don't know what was going on in Psalm 44. There are those who say, oh, you know, it was, it was when they were led into captivity or it was still during the monarchy or all these different things. What we do know is that Israel was going through it. They were being defeated by their enemies. And from their perspective, they hadn't done anything wrong. Right? So remember that Israel was in an if-and-then contract with God concerning the land. Right? Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, all deal with this. If you walk in obedience, then you will be blessed. If you walk in obedience, then I'll defeat the enemy. If you walk in obedience, the rain will fall, the crops will grow, the animals will flourish. If you walk in disobedience and serve the false gods of the land, then drought will come and famine will come and the enemies will win. And last but not least, you'll be kicked off the land if you refuse to turn from your way. And so in this situation, Israel is being defeated by its enemies. And the psalmist says, God, I don't understand. This isn't because we have done anything wrong. And this is, the psalmist actually says in Psalm 44, Lord, you know if we had worshipped other idols. God, you would know. The psalmist is crying, Lord, why is this happening? You would know if we were worshiping other idols. And Lord, we have been faithful to you. This was not a, a, a prideful statement that the psalmist was making. It was an honest question. Lord, why is this happening even though we have been faithful to you? Now, when in Israel's history they turned from the Lord and worshiped idols, and Israel did many times turn from the Lord and worship idols, and the Lord kept his word and brought in enemies to bring correction into their lives, we all read those stories and say, ah, okay, I get it. Israel was asking for it. You know, they were the kid sticking the butter knife in the light socket after their parents told them no. And now look, that's what happened. Uh, but here in this situation, we say, ah, oh, what's going on? Because this psalm reveals the experience of defeat, suffering, and humiliation in which there seems to be no provocation whatsoever from God's people. They seem to be walking in obedience to the Lord. And so they say, why, Lord? Why? And this psalm really underscores the reality that there are seasons of blessing in life and there are seasons of barrenness in life that are completely disconnected from our loyalty slash obedience to the Lord or even our actions. Sometimes we are just going through, even when we're walking closely to the Lord, even when we're walking in obedience to the Lord, these difficult seasons can come just like they did in Israel's day. And those seasons, those circumstances, and they can really throw us for a loop. We can really say, Lord, why? What's, what's going on? And that's how Israel felt. They felt so helpless that the psalmist said, we feel like a sheep being led to slaughter. I, there's not a lot of things more helpless than just a normal sheep, first of all. They have no fangs, they have no claws, they have no aggression. I mean, I was butted by a, a ram one time, and he was pretty tough, but I was also like 10. But generally speaking, they're pretty helpless. Not only are they helpless in their just normal state, but then when they're being led to slaughter, I mean, there's nothing they can do about it. And that's what Israel says. We feel like we've just been set apart, that we have no purpose in life other than to just be slaughtered. And, and this is the part that Paul quotes. That all of these things might come. Tribulation and distress and persecution 
And he goes on and on. And sometimes, Paul would say, we're, in, we're called to endure seasons of, of suffering when there is just no explanation for that suffering in that time. We just don't get it. And, and you know, Christians in other countries, it's a reality daily uh, that, that they experience suffering and persecution daily that they just don't understand. In the West, and we have it easy. We, we really do. We, we don't get it. Uh, but many have given their lives as martyrs for the Lord's sake. And even in such terrible, seemingly defeated and disgraced uh, times, none of those seasons, none of those difficulties can separate us from the love of God. And many of those martyrs, they understood that. And you read through like the quotes, the last words of many Christian martyrs, and the things that they say are so beautiful. None of them, not a single one said, oh boy, these dirty, rotten persecutors, Lord, get them. They said, Lord, forgive them. Save them. They don't even understand what they're doing, Lord, just like Jesus said, just like Stephen said. My heart belongs to the Lord. My heart rejoices in the Lord. Imagine being roped to a stake with bundles of wood soaked in kerosene at your feet, knowing that you're getting ready to be burned alive and saying, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Right? You know who utters those words? Somebody who understands this reality, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And in fact, Paul goes on to say in verse 37, not only can none of these things separate us from God, but in these things we're more than conquerors. Even in the very thing that would appear to take us out, Paul says, and we have victory over those things. Not in ourselves, uh, but through Jesus. Now, does that mean that you'll be healed of every disease? That you'll be vindicated of every false accusation? Uh, that, that you'll be compensated for every unjust loss? Yes, it does. It does. Uh, not in this life, maybe. Probably not. But in the next one, for sure. And so Paul says, all these things that can come against you, and none of them can separate us from the love of God. But I, I began to think about this, especially in light of the authors of, of Psalm 44. And I'll get to that here in just a second. But I began to think about all of these things that, that, that cannot separate us from the love of God. Uh, tribulation. Distress. Persecution. Famine, nakedness, peril, sword. All of these things are, are, are things that, that happen to us. Uh, they're things that, that happen to us. They're, they're storms like the storms that the disciples experienced. Right? E e even as the psalmist expressed the difficulty they were going through, even though they were walking in obedience, you know, there was some storms that the disciples experienced even as they were walking in obedience. And I've made mention of this before. Remember when they're, they're on this side of Galilee and, and Jesus had just fed the, the 5,000 and they wanted to make him king and Jesus was like, you boys need to get to the other side of the lake. Just get. And as they were walking in obedience, they were taking the boat to the other side of the lake. What happened? And a giant, giant storm rose up to, to the point they thought they were going to drown. They thought that was it. And I can imagine the disciples like, Lord, you're God. What's going on? You told us to go over here. We're walking in obedience. And on our way, while we're walking in obedience, here's this gigantic storm that threatens to take our lives. It was a, a storm 
of obedience. And, and those are the things that happen to us. Those are the things that, that, that Paul is talking about at the beginning of this. And the, the tribulation and the sword and the nakedness and, and all the rest. But what about those situations, not that happen to us, but those situations that we bring on ourselves? What about the storms of disobedience? And it got me thinking, can we separate ourselves from Jesus? You know, can I mess up my relationship with the Lord to the point to where God is done with me? And that's important for us to understand as Paul really makes this point of, man, nothing can separate us from God. And I believe that we can't even separate ourselves from God. We can't blow it to the point to where God is done with us. And Jonah is a perfect example of that. Jonah was a prophet of God. He loved the Lord. He knew the word. He was concerned with God's honor. He loved God. And one day the Lord came to Jonah and said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go and share my love with them. And therein lies the rub. You see, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrians. And if you guys have been trucking with us for a while, you know that the Assyrians, they were some bad hombres. They were the most feared war machines in the ancient world. They're the ones that led the ten northern tribes into captivity. They were known for their brutality. They had mastered the art of skinning a man and keeping him alive. They would cut the eyelids off of people and force them to stare at the sun. They would pile up skulls in front of the city gates of their victims to really induce fear. When they took people captive, they would run uh, hooks through their jaws, strip them naked, chain them together, and march them through the desert. They were brutal. And Jonah says, those guys, Lord, I'm going to pass. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm going to not Nineveh. I'm going to Tarshish. And Tarshish is as far away the other direction as you can get from Nineveh. He totally walked in disobedience. And you guys know what happened. On the, the ship, on the way to Tarshish, Jonah experienced a storm. It wasn't a storm of obedience. It was a storm of disobedience. It was a storm because he was a knucklehead. And the guys were like, what are we going to do? And Jonah's like, it's because of me. I'm walking in disobedience. They said, all right, you're out of here. Whoop, and they threw him overboard. And the whale swallowed him up. And it was there, man. Jonah was at the, the lowest point in his life. <laughs> Literally, he was at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> it was one of his darkest hours. There was no light switch inside of that whale. And life really stank. It smelled like fish. It was terrible. <laughs> but all the time when Jonah was just going through it, all the while, the Lord was seeing him through. All the while, the Lord was not finished with Jonah. The Lord wasn't like, well, I told him. And, and, and now he got eaten by a whale. Jonah, you're just going to be whale poop. <laughs> you know, he didn't do that. He said, Jonah, I'm going to get you where you need to go. And, and Jonah didn't do anything but sit inside that whale. And then the whale came up and barfed him up around the shore of Nineveh, where he repented and went and preached to the Ninevites, where there was probably the world's greatest revival that ever took place. So all of Nineveh got saved, all these wicked people. And so you look at Jonah's story and say, man, he was running from the Lord, and the Lord didn't wash his hands with him, and that's such good news for us. When we're in that place, when we're dealing with our own consequences, when, when life is low, when things are dark, when our circumstances stink because we've been knuckleheads, we can say, oh, Lord, I'm so glad that you're not done with me. I'm so glad that you're still getting me where I need to go outside of my own efforts and energies because I belong to you, because there's nothing that can separate me from your love. And what got me thinking about this whole thing was when I went back and looked at Psalm 44. Because you see, the author of Psalm 44 were the sons of Korah. 
And Korah has an amazing testimony that fits right into this idea that there's nothing we can do to separate us from God's love. So Korah was a descendant of Kohath. Kohath was one of three sons of Levi. Levi had three sons, uh, Kohath, uh, Gershon, and Merari. And they made up the, the, the priestly tribe. They were the Levites. They were all about the Lord's business. And each clan, each family, had their own responsibility there at the tabernacle. Remember, in the early days, it wasn't the, tab- or the temple. It was still the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was mobile. They had to tear it down and set it up everywhere they went as the Lord led. And each one of those clans, the descendants of Kohath and Merari and Gershon, they all had their own responsibilities in uh, the tabernacle. And uh, the, the Merarites, they were in char- charge of all the poles and all the cross members uh, of the, the tabernacle, really the framework. If you've ever driven by a house that's just two-by-fours, it's all framed up. They were in charge of the framing. Uh, then you had the Gershonites. The Gershonites were in charge of all the sheeting and the siding and all the windows and all that, you could say. They were in charge of all the tapestries and all the ropes. But then you had the Kohathites, and that's where Korah came from. He was a Kohathite. The Kohathites, they were in charge of the most precious possessions in the tabernacle. The articles of furniture, uh, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, uh, you know, the, the lampstand, and the most precious of all, the Ark of the Covenant. But you see, whereas the, the Gershonites and the Merarites could load up all of their stuff on carts and have the oxen tow their stuff to the next location, the big rigs would come back and in, you know, they'd have the, the roadies load everything up, and then off they'd go. Well, the Kohathites, it's a different situation. Boy, there was very specific and strict instructions on how the implements inside the tabernacle to be moved. And they were to be carried on the shoulders of the priests, especially the Ark of the Covenant. Remember uh, Uzi from Ohio? No, it wasn't Uzi from Ohio. It was uh, Uzzah and his brother Ohio. When David was bringing the, the tabernacle back to Jerusalem, they put the Ark on a cart and uh, Uzzah reached out to stable the ark when the oxen stumbled, and poof, he was no more. That was it. He died. He fell dead. Because there were special instructions for those guys to carry the ark. And so Kohath, you know, they were in charge of all that stuff. And Korah, being a descendant, that's what he was in charge of. So Korah, here he is, looking around at all of his brothers, loading up all their stuff on the big rigs, having to carry all of his stuff by hand, and he got bitter. And he rounded up some, some other guys, uh, Dathan and Abiram. And they went to uh, Moses with 250 of the leaders of the congregation and said, man, Moses, who died and made you king? Right? You, you, you led us out of Egypt. It was a place that was wonderful. They actually called Egypt the place flowing with milk and honey. What? That was just ridiculous. Egypt, they were slaves, remember. That was a dumb thing to say. Anyways, said, Moses, who died and made you king? You took us out of, out of Egypt to lead us out here so you could just boss us around? Who put you in charge? And Moses was broken. He went before the Lord. And the Lord gave Moses instructions. And he said, all right, Kohath, this is what we're going to do. Uh, you and, uh, and Dathan and Abiram and the 250, you come. And we'll all stand before the Lord and we'll see who he put in charge. And it says that, the Lord showed up. 
the, that, that, that God's presence was there. And that, uh, that, that God instructed Moses to tell these guys, man, if these men live and die a natural death, then you guys will know that I'm a fraud. But if the earth opens up and swallows them, you'll know that they were a fraud. That's pretty bold. You'll know that they're wrong because the earth is going to open up and swallow them. And guess what happened? The earth opened up and swallowed them. Uh, the Lord said, make sure you get away from all of these guys and all their families. You don't want to be standing next to them when this happens. And they were all swallowed up. The 250 men, fire came down, <laughs> torched them, obliterated them. Now, why do I tell this story and how does it fit in? Because it was the sons of Korah who wrote Psalm 44. Wait a minute. If the sons of Korah were, were, were swallowed up by the earth, how did they write Psalm 44? Well, in, in Numbers 25, in verse 11, it says, Nevertheless, the sons of Korah did not die. See, Korah was swallowed up, but his sons were spared. And it's interesting to me because the sons of Korah have a beautiful testimony. And it's a testimony where they go from rebellion to worshipers. And that is our story. That we went from being rebellious to being worshipers. So we have Jonah's story. And he was a, a knucklehead. The Lord spared him. There was nothing he could do to get away from the Lord. We have the sons of Korah. In Luke 15, we have the lost sheep wandered off. The Lord saved him, the lost coin. The, the lost son, the prodigal, what a knucklehead he was. But the father didn't lose him either. And 1 Peter 1.3 tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I've touched on this before. This is such a key verse for us. Because there's nothing you can do. Your inheritance is stored in heaven where you cannot mess it up. That is wonderful news. Nothing can separate us from our destiny to be with the Lord. Nothing that can happen to us. Nothing that we can do to ourselves. You say, well, what about those people who renounce their faith and walk away? A faith that you can walk away from was never a saving faith to begin with. And that's my honest opinion. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. And so that's encouraging. And Paul goes on to say, well, there's nothing that can separate us. He, he, he adds to this. We are more than conquerors through him uh, who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, uh, nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing in the physical realm, nothing in the spiritual realm, nothing in our past, nothing in our future, no distant obstacle, uh, uh, nothing in all of creation. Nothing can separate us from God. No tragedy or trial, no mistake that I have made, am currently making, or will make can separate us from God's love. And so you say, well, then why not just live your life the way you want to? Right? If nothing can separate us from the love of God, then why not just go for it and have your cake and eat it too? Well, ask Jonah how that worked out. Ask the prodigal son how that worked out. Ask the sons of Korah. The Lord will see you through, but boy, there's a lot of unnecessary suffering that will take place if you choose to live your life that way. 
And my prayer for us isn't that we would say, all right, man, the Lord's going to see us through. Let's do whatever we want anyways. And my prayer is that we would step back and look at this truth tonight. See, man, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, not the things that happen to us, not the things that we find ourselves doing, nothing. And that would cause us to just worship the Lord all the more, that it would be his kindness that leads us to repentance, even as Paul has said earlier. And what a cool truth that is. And so now as Paul uh, deals with this, boy, he's, chapter 8 has been so rich. I'm sad to see it go, but man, it covers all the bases. In the very beginning, man, our past has been dealt with. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our present circumstances, where they're being worked out together for good. And our future is secure. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Man, leave this place rejoicing in that tonight. And, you know, as Paul considered this reality, as he, he wrote these words to the church in Rome, to the Christians there, boy, I bet they rejoiced. And we can rejoice tonight. But as Paul is writing these letters to the Christians, as he's communicating this truth to the Christians, man, there's nothing that can separate you from God's love. And Paul's heart began to ache for his own countrymen. The Jew, God's chosen people, And God's promises to them still stand. And that's what Paul is going to address. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, but God isn't done with his people yet. And it's very fitting as, you know, things in Israel are heating up that chapters 9, 10, and 11 all deal with the truth that God's not done with his people. God is not done. He's going to see them through. And so, man, be encouraged tonight. God is good. Amen? So, Lord, thank you so much, again, just for the, the truth of your word and the work that it's doing in our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that Uh, we would be those who uh, have ears to hear, Lord, who have a desire to to walk in obedience, Lord, who uh, are doers of the word and not hearers only, that that as we hear these wonderful truths that we would rejoice, uh, that we would be blown away, that we would cry out hallelujah, praise the Lord, but that these truths would draw us closer to you that truly your kindness would lead us to repentance and that we would never see these realities, your goodness towards us as an opportunity to see how far we can take sin in our lives. But Lord, that we would, we would see these truths and again, that it would just draw us closer to you. We love you, Lord, and as we go our way, I pray that we would go rejoicing in the security that we have in you because we aren't gonna see ourselves through Lord, it's by your power that we're going to be seen through to an inheritance that we can't mess up, Lord, that can't be snatched away from us. And we thank you for that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. 